I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music feuds and beefs and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan, and we're about to venture to the land of frosted tips, fedoras, and Darren's dance grooves. I cannot wait. Today, we have a boy band brawl, Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC. I cannot wait. Yes. Yeah, this is going to be interesting, man. Like, I feel like you were of the right age during this era, you know, because you're you're a little bit younger than me. Like, weren't you like in grade school when these bands were really blown up? Yeah, I was like 12 probably during the height of this, which was which is weird because it felt like you were expected as like a boy on the playground to like mercilessly mock both of these bands. But of course, you like privately did kind of enjoy some of the some of the, the bigger bops. Um, I got to say, I'm kind of as much as I'm excited to do this episode. I don't think I've ever been more frightened to do one of these because the fandoms are just really intense for both of these groups. And I I just have like a very real fear that there are people in my life who won't speak to me by the end of this episode. And it's it's tearing up my heart. I got to say, it really is. Well, part of hosting a podcast is having the courage to upset boy band fans, (laughs) Jordan. So uh, we must adhere to professional responsibility. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to get into this, too. Like, I I was in college during uh, the boy band era. Uh, so I was listening to, you know, Built to Spill and Neutral Milk Hotel and all of these late 90s indie rock bands. But I was also listening to the radio a lot at that time. So I also know every word to I Want It That Way by heart, even though I still don't understand what that song means. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, which I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in this episode. It's definitely a song written by Swedish people who do not speak English as their first language. This is pre-Google Translate. In spite of all that, a brilliant song. And uh, yeah, this is going to be fun because 
as uh, cuddly as these groups are, there's actually like a lot of genuine animosity and seediness in this story, which is stuff I love. So I'm excited to get into it. Let's dive into this mess. All right, two boy bands, both alike in dignity, in Fair Orlando, where we lay our scene. The story really begins with Lou Pearlman, who's like really one of the truly great music industry sleazebags, right? Like, it's just everything about him. He's, he's like Harvey Weinstein meets Colonel Tom Parker. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, that's a great, great comparison. I mean, he's just I think A.J. McLean in uh, the uh, 2009 documentary, The Lou Pearlman Story, called him the best used car salesman you've ever seen. And it's. I mean, you, in a way, you almost feel bad for him because he has kind of a sad backstory. He grew up in Queens as like the chubby kid that no one wanted to know. And so he just kind of like started lying all the time and telling tall tales just to kind of make people like him, which, you know, mm. I mean, it's such a, a childlike thing, but it, it, it's sad. And I guess he used to tell people, you know, one day I'm going to be rich and, and when I'm rich, people will like me. And half of that happened, at least. He did get very rich. <laughs> I love the story of how he got into the boy band business, which, you know, because he he did. I don't know if he made his fortune, but he definitely got into the business world by chartering airplanes. And uh, he once chartered an airplane for the new kids on the block. And he saw how much money they were making. And he couldn't believe that these young kids were were so rich. So he asked his uncle, who, by the way, who was his uncle, Jordan? Oh, it was his cousin. His cousin was Art Garfunkel. And that part was true. Oh, yes. For habitual fibber, that's, that's right. a pretty good, like, real thing to have. I was hoping it was his uncle. I like the idea of Uncle Artie, but it's cousin <laughs> Artie. I love how on this show, by the way, that, like, previous stars of our episodes always seem to come back in later episodes, like, in unexpected ways. Like, we just talked about Simon and Garfunkel, and now Garfunkel rears his afroed head once again <laughs> in a Rivals episode. It's a through it's line. Billy Joel comes up a lot too, I feel like. Oh yeah, well that's just because we both are obsessed with Billy Joel, but be that as it may, he talks to Art Garfunkel, Lou Pearlman, and he realizes that this is a business that he, that he wants to be in, so he launches Transcontinental Records, and he goes on this talent search, like looking for the next great boy band, and he ends up hooking up with Johnny Wright, who was the manager for New Kids on the Block. And he ends up forming the Backstreet Boys and also forming in sync and pitting them against each other. He amasses a ton of money. He becomes as rich as he hoped to be as a kid. But then it all sort of comes crashing down and uh, he ends up going to prison and actually dying in prison, which is a terrible way to end up. But that is getting ahead of ourselves. We should go back here and get back to forming of the Backstreet Boys, because uh, it's a pretty interesting story, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's it's it almost sounds like some kind of weird like summer camp thing. He placed an ad in the Orlando Sentinel for for vocalists who wanted to form a pop group. And I think A.J. McLean came first and he auditioned for him in his living room, which I don't know, makes me feel kind of weird. But and so the other guys showed up and they they rented a well, I guess he owned a blimp hanger from his his transport business. So he basically staged what he called boy band boot camp and just had him practicing out there for like six to eight hours a day. No AC, just long days of dance rehearsals and voice lessons. Like it was quite a bonding experience. And then I'm pretty sure they all lived together in in Lou's like Florida mansion, and uh, yeah, which and had like movie nights. It, it, there's there's tinges of like Michael Jackson yeah. in here. I feel like yeah, yeah. One thing I forgot to mention is that Lou Pearlman has been accused of sexual harassment, even assault by. Boys under his tutelage, essentially, like groups that he's uh, been involved with putting together. I don't think there was any accusations from the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC camps, but 
like what didn't like members of LFO accuse him of sexual impropriety? And I think there was a guy from O-Town that also called him out at one point. Yeah, I think Ashley Parker Angel from O-Town also did. And yeah, there was definitely some weirdness there. I don't know, you know, if anything was ever proven. But but yeah, a bunch of kids in this middle aged guy's house. Totally normal. Uh, we got AJ first, I believe. Uh, Howie. Uh, had auditioned for Menudo, the uh, the uh, Latin boy band. Uh, Nick Carter was like 13, and I think he turned down a role in the uh, Mickey Mouse Club to to for a shot at this. Uh, Kevin Richardson was working at Disney as Aladdin, which I can totally see at the time. And uh, Kevin suggested his younger cousin, Brian Luttrell, who uh, I guess got the call in the middle of a high school history class. Like the, someone called him to the office, to, like take a phone call, and it was his cousin being like, hey, do you want to sing in this band? Like, and make a ton of hits, make a lot of money. And said, all right, sure. It's, you know, this is a lot better than the, uh, you know, the Louisiana purchase or whatever I'm learning a history class that day. So, uh, so yeah. And isn't it, is it fair to say that like Luttrell was like the Timberlake of Backstreet Boys? It seems like he was the de facto lead singer I, of that group. Wasn't he or, or, or was it Carter? I always thought it was Brian, but then when I would kind of like run that by people, because that was always my gut, like, no, no, it was either, it was a huge argument for Nick also. And also AJ made a strong showing too. So, and that's, and we'll get into this later too. I always felt that Backstreet Boys were much more of a band than NSYNC. Like NSYNC, I always kind of got the impression was sort of outshone by JT and JC to a certain extent. But yeah, no, there were, they had their share of lead vocalists, but Anyway. Oh yeah, they were they were definitely more of a unit, probably because the guys in that band I think are a little more faceless than yeah. the people in NSYNC. I mean, they're, they're if, you know if they had had a Justin Timberlake type talent in the Backstreet Boys, he probably would have you know risen you know risen to the top in, in the way that you know the actual JT rose to the top in NSYNC. But at any rate, what, what what fascinates me about the Backstreet Boys like early image was that they were conceived as like this bad boy act like I, the first time that they performed was in may 1993 at SeaWorld in Orlando, <laughs> bad boys which, I, I feel like yeah i feel like SeaWorld was like you know the cbgb of of, of the boy band scene <laughs> you know it, it seems like a lot of boy bands like performed at places like that early in their career so shamu uh, is but yeah, like but yeah like they were wearing like you know like leather jackets and at that time, and you know, I, I think there was this idea that they were going to be sort of like the tough boy band. And it's very intriguing to me because w when I think about the Backstreet Boys, especially in comparison to NSYNC, I think of them as being the more adult band in spite of being called boys. Like there's something uh, very stodgy in a way of, in the way that they're presented. Like I just think of them in like the all white suits from like the I want it that way video you know whereas in sync always seemed like they were dressed more like kids essentially a little edgier and I don't want to say street yeah they just like came off a pickup like basketball game or something they're all were like wearing basketball jerseys and stuff and like yeah they exactly they felt like the kids next door but like Lou Perlman was I think um shrewd in the sense that you know as soon as he got the Backstreet Boys going he started thinking about another group that could be uh, a contrast. I, I think the analogy that he used is that, you know, if you have Coke, you also want to have Pepsi. So as he's getting the Backstreet Boys going, he's also getting in sync rolling as well, although he's not really telling the Backstreet Boys about it, right? I mean, it, it, it's sort of a, a sneaky thing, and that ends up being one of the first real defining things of this rivalry. It's like what makes the Backstreet Boys, at least for a while, resent in sync. 
Oh yeah, it was crazy. I mean, he he kept them. He had NSYNC on all like business forms as under a code name. I think it was called B Five or something. In case anyone at the label like got wind of it and then told the Backstreet Boys, he was really really underhanded about it. And then I guess he finally showed. Uh, I think it was Kevin like a VHS recording of of NSYNC just sort of showcasing them. And Kevin later said in an interview, I, I think it was the the, Beach, the uh, Backstreet Boys documentary, saying like you know that really felt like a betrayal. We started out thinking you know we're a team, we're gonna take over the world. There's nobody like us and then it's like oh my manager made somebody exactly like us cool like that we can that's going to be our biggest competition so yeah it must have felt like you know why would you why would you do this after we we lived with you they, they called him big papa which again doesn't fill me with a good feeling but uh they viewed him as like this, <laughs> right. yeah it's this like paternal figure that they lived with and used to like get driving lessons in his rolls royce and just i don't know have dinner nights and movie nights and stuff and then suddenly to find out he's basically been two-timing him, it probably felt like, yeah, having like a, a mistress or something if somebody who's like a full-time girlfriend. It really, really hurt them. It seems like from Lou Pearlman's perspective, he saw himself as a potential Barry Gordy figure. And Barry Gordy, of course, is the founder of, of Motown, one of the great music moguls of all time. And Barry Gordy essentially created a factory for hit pop groups. Like, he just kept turning them out. You know, it was the... Whether it was the Four Tops or it was the Jackson Five, the Temptations, all all down the line. And I think uh, there's this great quote from Johnny Wright uh, from Rolling Stone in 1998 where he said that, you know, instead of Motown, we wanted to be Snowtown. <laughs> <laughs> like he referred to them as Snowtown. This idea of like whatever Motown was for R&B acts in the 60s and 70s, we're going to be like that for boy bands in the 90s. And of course, Lou Pearlman foregrounded that a little bit later on with the whole making the band series uh, where it's like, okay, not only am I going to be this impresario, I'm actually going to like show the public how easy the this infrastructure is. of this. Yeah. How easy it is, which of course isn't true added to the resentment no. of the groups that he first started. Like I, I know the Backstreet Boys, for instance, like hated that show because it basically made them look like chumps. Like, oh yeah, we're, we're just another product of this guy's assembly line. But yeah, like with, with NSYNC, I mean, they started getting going. I, I guess it was like, was it like a year or two after Backstreet? It was like mid 90s or so. Yeah, I think it was like 95 and Backstreet was 93. And it started with Chris Kirkpatrick, uh, who was actually somebody who auditioned for the Backstreet Boys. So I think that was how we got on Lou Pearlman's radar. And then he knew uh, Justin Timberlake and JC. Um, and JC and, and Justin Timberlake were on the Mickey Mouse Club together. And I think, I could be wrong, I think the three of them were doing like, demos in Nashville together or something. So they had some kind of musical connection and they ran into Chris's friend from Orlando, Joey Fatone, who I, I love this so much. He was working as Wolfman at the uh, Universal Studios Beetlejuice Rock and Roll Graveyard and Review, which <laughs> I can just completely Beautiful. see that. Yeah, perfect Wolfman. And then uh, Justin's <laughs> vocal coach suggested uh, Lance, who was this 15-year-old from Mississippi. Um, there was originally another guy named Jason and that was how they got the band's name was it was supposed to be the last letter of all of their first names. So this, I forget mm. what happened to this guy, Jason. He was kind of like the uh, like the Pete Best, I guess, of the uh, of NSYNC. I was going to say. And I, he only Jason. lasted like a couple weeks. I think he decided. I don't think he was fired. I think he decided to leave. But so they made Lance change his name uh, like officially to, to Lanston so that the whole like last letter of the first name thing still worked out, which I love. Lanston? Lanston. Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't really have like, a, it doesn't like scan in Tiger Beat, I have to say. That's not a good. No, not really. No. 
But yeah, like you were saying, he he really tried to pit them against each other in in their image. Like if Backstreet Boys were the sort of dark, moody, slightly more adult group, then they were the boys next door. They're in basketball jerseys and shorts and Air Jordan shoes and stuff. And I don't know if I agree with this, but I guess in principle, they were supposed to be more of a performance-based group with like way better dance moves. They had like the, what's his name? Darren from Darren's Dance Grooves doing a lot of choreography for him. And they were supposed to be more focused on 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 concerts and stuff. Whereas uh, Backstreet Boys were, I guess, more focused on their harmonies. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's, I guess, what the idea was behind the two, if like they're separate images. That makes sense to me. Because again, I think when you look at how the Backstreet Boys are presented in their videos, they just seemed a little more stoic and uh like i said more adult and I, I feel like the performance style of nsync it just seems younger and uh more energetic and i think that's why ultimately nsync i feel like they overtook backstreet boys by the end even though and this is something we're going to get into i mean there's I, I feel like there's a perception that nsync is more popular than the backstreet boys although backstreet boys are uh, statistically the the best-selling boy band of all time. Um, By like a long shot. I think NSYNC is number eight. Right. Which, But but again, it, like perception-wise, I feel like NSYNC, they still seem like more of a touchstone to me, maybe again because they seem younger and also because they had Justin Timberlake. I mean, I, I think that was ultimately the thing that like historically, you know, people are going to remember NSYNC because Justin Timberlake came from there, whereas the Backstreet Boys are still together, they're still a unit, but they didn't have, like, that one breakout star uh, in the same way that, like, you know, the Jackson 5 had Michael Jackson, you know, NSYNC had Justin Timberlake. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting, you know, how in the early days, NSYNC was the underdog in this uh, in this dynamic, and, uh, you know, the, the members of NSYNC have talked about how they really felt like the redheaded stepchild, essentially, in this... Uh, in this company that like the Backstreet Boys were the main attraction and in and sync where we're going to be, you know, always coming up uh, behind them. And it seems like that has a lot to do with how they were launched because I mean, it's, their careers got started around the same time, but Backstreet Boys became successful just like a little bit later than they did. Right. Yeah. I think Backstreet Boys launched first in Europe. So they were technically first, but I, I feel like that, and then NSYNC, they, they both also got their start in, in, in Europe. It was kind of like, I think it was twofold. The, the European market was really, really just primed for, for American boy bands. There was a huge, huge fad for them at that time over there. And they were selling like crazy. And also, I think it was almost like a Broadway show opening out of town just to like get the kinks out first and sort of like, you know, making sure it's all good before you, you open on, on, on the great white way. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. 
you can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. But yeah, the Backstreet Boys got started first in the States. And they, again, like you said, NSYNC was sort of more of the underdog until July 1998. And there was a, um, Disney had an hour-long concert special planned. And, uh, and, and they wanted the Backstreet Boys to do it. And Brian Luttrell had heart surgery. And so they, they couldn't do it. And so NSYNC stepped in. And it was kind of their star-making moment. I guess, like, records just started to absolutely snowball at that point. They went from selling, like, I think... 500 albums a week to like 50 to 60,000 a week. I mean, it just went totally crazy. It went from being at like 63 on Billboard to, you know, jumping up to, I think number two was as high as um, as their debut album got. And Backstreet Boys resented the hell out of that. It was basically like, you know, they just completely went off our coattails and everything we passed on, they, they would take. And now just adding insult to injury, they made a huge success of it. So that kind of, so the actual resentment between the two bands. And it's weird because I think the, the, I think there was a moment in Europe where it could have been either one of them that got the first push, right? I mean, because they were both being successful overseas. The Backstreet Boys record, I think, dropped in like early 1998, like January or so. And then I think the NSYNC record came out like a few months after that. So if that had been switched, which you feel like it could have easily done then it would have been the other way around. It would have been the Backstreet Boys riding on NSYNC's coattails, don't you think? I mean, I just wonder, like, how this would have shaken up if NSYNC would have launched first and if the Backstreet Boys would have just been overshadowed completely from the beginning. Like, maybe that they, maybe really they were successful first because they kind of got that push early on. Yeah. This is sort of like an alternate timeline of boy band history I'm throwing wow, out Wow, yeah, that's really <laughs> fascinating. You're right. Because I feel like, you know, the Backstreet Boys ended up resenting NSYNC at this time because, as you said, they, there was this idea that, like, anything that the Backstreet Boys rejected, NSYNC would get. And 
they would somehow benefit from being in the jet stream of the Backstreet Boys. But I also think they probably ended up resenting NSYNC because they could see NSYNC bigfooting them at some point. And they knew that they had Justin Timberlake. Right. And and, and I think Timberlake, in a way, becomes like the auteur of NSYNC, like as they go on, like in a way that like, like the Backstreet Boys don't really have an auteur, like a, like a person that you would look to as like a figurehead or, or someone who's who's really in control. Another thing I think is interesting about NSYNC is that, you know, they put out No Strings Attached in, in 2000. And how old were you when that came out? Were you, you were like 12 or 13 I was, when that album dropped? I was 12, yeah. 12. I've always thought of that as like maybe the only like meta boy band album. And that it's an album that sort of comments on being a boy band. Uh, just like the puppet Im- imagery of the cover, I just interpreted that as them sort of mocking the idea that they were just puppets on a string for someone like Lou Pearlman and, and they didn't have any talent of their own. They always had a really so good sense of humor were... about that. You're right. I mean, and then it was the, uh, the, the action figure video too and even Celebrity, the album. Right. And I feel like that self-awareness also helped gravitate them past the Backstreet Boys who for all their attributes and we're going to get into some of that later in this episode because we're both Backstreet Boys defenders <laughs> um, but I think they had a more old-fashioned image and artistic sensibility and InSync was just more modern and ultimately I think that's what gravitated them at least perception wise because again like record sales tell a different story but I just feel like in retrospect, when people talk about this era, they tend to speak more favorably of NSYNC, right? Or am I wrong about it? No, it was really strange because I came into this thinking that NSYNC really, without having studied any of the chart statistics and stuff, was the bigger band by far and away, cultural influence and sales-wise. And that's, sales-wise at least, very much not the case. But you're right, there's something so much more fun about them that I always got, you know, I mean, like you said, the some people liked the whole moody Backstreet Boys thing, but Instant kind of felt more like it felt like the Beatles in a Hard Day's Night to me. I always felt they were like running around, playing basketball, having like food fights. Just, just I imagined that they lived like almost like in the house in the monkeys or something. Like it just seemed like they were having so much more of a good time, and the self awareness was fun too. It kind of like felt like they let you in on the joke, and it made it okay to like a band that that seemed so clearly manufactured and put together. It was like, yeah, we know this is kind of goofy, but isn't this fun? And yeah, I mean, even the um, the beginning of the pop video when uh, when Justin's like talking to the woman with the big bottle of, of, of pop in his hand. It just, the, the, the plays on consumerism that seem to be apparent in so much of their, their, um, their image and their videos and the action figure one. Uh, yeah, it, it's definitely, it feels more, more fun, more inclusive, more, more, and the self-awareness especially does make it so much more just funny. Yeah. And I, I just feel like if you were a kid, they just seem like the more fun band to be a fan of than Backstreet Boys. Although again, I'm sure there are boy band fans listening to this episode who think that's an insane take and love the Backstreet Boys much more than NSYNC. But I, I just think like that postmodern aspect of NSYNC is just cooler ultimately than what Backstreet was doing. And I just wonder if that was fueling the resentment on the Backstreet Boys side. Although it's also clear that like Lou Pearlman 
was stoking these flames too, right? I mean, didn't he like pitting these guys against each other? Oh, yeah. It was like total like middle school lunchroom behavior. He would like bitch about, you know, oh man, did you hear what did you hear what AJ said about about you, JT, or something? Like he would just completely bitch to them about the other behind their back and say that that they were both talking shit, which was not true. It's like like completely not true. But he liked having them apart, uh, both to sort of stoke the rivalry just publicly. And also, I don't think he wanted them to talk because he probably didn't want them to compare notes about business dealings, which were questionable. Very questionable. The old divide and conquer strategy. Although I guess in, on, there, they did have one true point of beef, which I guess Chris Kirkpatrick said at one point that he wanted to punch AJ McLean because he uh, he was dating a, a girl, like dating Chris's ex-girlfriend. And I guess AJ started uh-huh. saying that, you know, he, he was a bad boyfriend or something. And, and they had like a little tiff, I think, for a little while there in the in the early 2000s. But And that's great, too, because they were like the respective bad boys right. of their bands. <laughs> I didn't think McLean of that. was like, he had... McLean had like, you know, like the very finely sculpted facial hair. And I think he had some tattoos and uh, and the dreads, you know. It, yeah, he was like the bad boy of, of Backstreet. And Chris Kirkpatrick, he's not really a bad boy, but he had like the wackiest hair. So I guess that default makes him the bad boy. Unless would J.C. Chazé be the bad boy? I always thought no, he was like, he's the, like the soulful sort of, one, like the easily hurt right. vulnerable he's like, one. He, he's like J.T.'s wingman. Yeah. <laughs> he's like. And in way, in a way, he's like the most handsome guy in the band. Oh yeah, JC. Oh, absolutely. At he's the handsomer time, yeah. than, than than JT, but he doesn't have quite the the charisma or, or the talent. Fatone is like the is is the friend. He's he's the fun guy. And Lance Bass, he's 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 just hanging out. He's there. He's Lanston. He helps complete the the band name. <laughs> yeah. So that that's all the elements there. Um, and. I feel like another dividing thing, too, that occurred at this time in the boy band world was like Johnny Wright, who, you know, if uh, Perlman was like the huckster of the boy band empire. I mean, Johnny Wright, I think, really was the visionary, if you want to use that word. Yeah. And I guess Backstreet Boys ultimately gave him an ultimatum, which was like, you know, all right, choose. Like, are you going to manage us and kind of manage our career or in sync? And he ended up going with NSYNC. And uh, I think that that definitely caused some some pain i don't think he really wanted to choose but uh but yeah he ended up with being within sync which might be responsible for why we kind of envision them now as still being the, the more impactful and, and relevant and influential band too maybe because he had had that guiding force yeah and I, I think johnny wright knew that he's gonna hitch his wagon to jt yeah and you know like whatever it's like i'm gonna because you know as as successful as the as backstreet was you could probably tell that those guys were always going to be greater than the sum of their parts. Whereas NSYNC had like a really valuable asset in the middle who was probably going to eventually inevitably go out on his own. So I think Johnny Wright was probably savvy enough to recognize that in the moment. And I always thought JC never got his due too. I always thought he could have been, I don't know if he had, I don't know what it was more, more of personality, more of something. I thought his voice was just as good as JT's in so many ways too. Well, he didn't have the wherewithal to hook up with the Neptunes. I think that was ultimate, and, and I guess in uh, uh, Timbaland later on. I mean, like, just I think JT's taste was the best in that band, and he just mm. was the most discerning and knowing like what he should be associated with. And I think that started in sync, and then it really took over for sure on his first two albums as a solo artist. And I think later on he kind of loses his way a little bit, but. 
At the time, however, the uh, the war between Backstreet and NSYNC, it started to cool once this divide-and-conquer strategy that, that Lou Perlman had started to break down and these guys actually started talking to each other and realizing, like, how much they were being screwed. And it really is, like, that age-old tale of, like, signing a bad record deal and uh, getting no money even though you're being hugely successful because it's all going to your management and your record label, which I, I guess in this case was the same person. I mean, because Lou Perlman... Because they were still were they still on Transcontinental at this time, or did they go? Or were they at a different label? I think they went to Mercury, and the only reason I I, I know that I remember that is because I think uh, John Mellencamp, who was also I believe on Mercury, threatened to leave if they did business with boy bands. So I I think that they they had some kind of I don't know if it was a distribution deal or what, but I think they were involved with Mercury at that time. Oh man, see, I, I wonder if if Cougar has like met Justin Timberlake since then. I feel like those two would probably get along. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, especially now, JT's just like a middle-aged dad. So he probably likes Cougar Mellencamp uh, by now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there was this instance, I think, with the Backstreet Boys, like where they made like $10 million for Lou Pearlman uh, in the 90s. And they were and together they made $300,000, which comes out to sixty grand a piece, you know, which means that they were being paid what, you know, people get paid for – you know, computer programming, basically. Uh, actually, computer programmers probably make a lot more than that. You know, the point is, is that they were like one of the biggest pop bands in the world and they were making a fraction of what they were generating. And the thing that I never understood, because I thought he would have been smarter than this, instead of just kind of silently ripping them off and just kind of saying, oh yeah, it's giving me more of that came, more, more of that came from, kind of the classic huckster manager line, he made a big show of presenting them this tiny check. I think it was in sync. They invited him out to dinner at some fancy steakhouse and on the plates in front of him, they all had an envelope and on, on his count, they reached down and opened them all up and looked at them and there were checks for $10,000. And this is after selling, you know, 10 million records or, or whatever. And I, I guess, I think in Lance's autobiography he says that he just like ripped the check up on the spot. And that was when he knew like, okay, there's something up with Lou. There's something wrong here. Uh, and I, yeah, I love the story though about like how uh, <laughs> all these guys bonded because there was this uh, charity uh, basketball game that Justin and JC were playing in from InSync and Brian and Nick from Backstreet were you know in the same game and then they all went to McDonald's <laughs> afterward. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> Which by the way, like how awesome would it be to be at McDonald's in like 1998 and you see, you know these heads of boy band empires walk in to discuss how they're being ripped off by their manager. <laughs> the boy uh, band but yes, the, the, the Over historic, McFlurries. The, <laughs> yes, the McFlurry Summit <laughs> of uh, 1998 or whatever it was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they started talking and they realized like, wow, you're not making any money and we're not making any money. And Lou Pearlman is like rolling around in money naked on beds with you know <laughs> why did you do hundred dollar bills spread everywhere oh take that sorry. out of my head right now i'm sorry the point is is that lou perlman's rich and we're not and we <laughs> need to do something about this right and i think it was brian who went first and said we we're gonna file a lawsuit we have to i think um someone in nsync's uncle or something took a look at the contract and called it the single worst contract he'd ever seen in his history of practicing entertainment law. Really, really bad news. Um, it was a extremely ugly uh, court battle for, for 
both of them. Um, I, I think Backstreet Boys were able to buy themselves out of his contract for something like $30 million. And NSYNC, it was a little worse. I mean, I don't know if you'd call it David and Goliath, but not far off. The label was basically saying, you know, he owns you. He owns the name. He owns... I think the masters actually he, he, like you, you can't win this, but they found a loophole in their contract where I, I forget exactly. It's a lot of legal minutia, but I think the fact that they signed it when they were in Germany and the contract was only valid in the, if they signed it in the United States, it was something weird like that about where they were when they signed it, uh, got them sort of a loophole to, to, to end up getting out of it. And, um, the result for both of the bands was, um, incredible albums that both kind of obliquely reference this whole uh saga the um the one that kind of most directly does is um instincts no strings attached which you said earlier is kind of a reference to cutting the strings of the puppet master uh they see it on the cover and in the video for for bye 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 which i always thought was a uh, a very telling title for i think their first single after the perlman uh debacle but um this album no strings attached uh sold 2.4 million copies in its first week in 2000, which was a record that held until 2015 for Adele. I mean, just absolutely insane amount. And not to, I guess they were kind of getting along at this point, but Backstreet probably wasn't too happy that, about that because they had held the record before that with Millennium for, I think it was 1.5 million in its first week, something like that. But yeah, this is like the steroid era for uh, for record sales. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this is like right so, so when McGuire. Napster is starting to hit crit critical mass. Like you know, Napster starts to become a thing in 1999 on college campuses, and it's really going to start taking over in the early aughts. But like right before that, it was like the fall of Rome. You know, like we're we're partying hardcore. You know, just total decadence and drunk on teen pop money at this time and uh no strings attached is sort of like the height of that before everything started to fall apart uh for record sales you can almost kind of see it in the backstreet boys next album which was called black and blue which they said was sort of a reference to the way that their their former mentor had bruised them and and that didn't sell quite as much it's almost like like you said no strings attached was the apex and it started going down a little bit and then um nsync's next album celebrity 2 didn't sell as well i know that's still sold ridiculous amount but um but yeah B backstreet and uh nsync they later said that their fights boy band fights are like hockey fights it looks real bad on tv but afterwards you go out and have a beer and they um i think lance ended up telling people magazine you know i it, this whole thing with lou really brought us together more and and, and they're they're buds kind of so they become buds as we enter into the aughts and it's an interesting period for both of these groups because as they become bonded their careers end up taking very different paths. Like you have InSync, who they put out Celebrity, as you mentioned, um, after No Strings Attached. And that record does really great by pretty much anyone's standards other than InSync. Like it, it's not as big of a hit as No Strings Attached. And more importantly, Justin Timberlake is getting going on his solo career. And, you know, I revisited the first two Timberlake records getting ready for this podcast. And I gotta say, man, Justified um his debut i think is like one of the best pop records of, of the last 20 years i mean that is such a great record and people talk about future sex love sounds uh being i think his artistic pinnacle which i think that's a great record too but to me like when i look at justin timberlake's career it's hard not to look at in sync as successful as they were as like a preamble to like those records um, at least artistically speaking. 
because I think that is really like some of the best music that came out of the teen pop wave of the late, of the late nineties. Like if you want to talk about how like with Michael Jackson off the wall and thriller were like a combination of his journey from being a Motown child star, then moving on through the seventies. And then he gets to make those records. Like I'm not saying those records are as good as off the wall and thriller, but like, I think for Timberlake, that's as good as he got in terms of making pop music. Uh, wouldn't you agree? I mean, to me, like those kind of overshadow everything that he did in NSYNC. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the same way that I like Off the Wall more than Thriller, I like Justified more than Future Sex Love Sounds, which I think a lot of those songs on Justified, weren't they sort of not rejects, but songs that Michael Jackson passed on for Invincible? I, I think at least a couple of them were, right? Yeah, I, 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 I've never... I'm not quite sure if that's true or if that is just urban legend. Maybe. Like I've heard that mentioned and it, and it seems like, you know, like a song like Rock Your Body, for instance, that just seems like such a great homage to off the wall era Michael Jackson that it's like, oh, why didn't Michael Jackson record this? Yeah. Like if that were true. Um, but I think in a way, you know, again, we've, we've had this thing where we're, where we both feel like NSYNC seems more popular than the Backstreet Boys, even though the Backstreet Boys... Uh, statistically sold more records um i really think that people maybe just add justin timberlake's solo career to the legacy of nsync even though nsync by 2007 they were officially finished by then and they've never gotten back together um but in a way i feel like justin timberlake's kind of carried the torch forward for them and maybe that's affected how we perceive these two groups and it's kind of ensured in a way that nsync uh transcended their era in a way that the Backstreet Boys didn't. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's right. I mean, Justin Timberlake's still getting chart hits, whereas Backstreet Boys, I, I don't really think the, the stuff, they, the song they did with like New Kids on the Block, for example, like I, I don't really think of it as being quite as relevant in the same way. I mean, they the fact that they're still going is, you know, really great. And, you know, I'm trying to be kinder. They got their Vegas residency and, and they've released a bunch of albums since then. But yeah, it just, it feels like kind of, you know, Elvis in Vegas era to me. Like, it, it feels nostalgia heavy, which is, you know, a, right. a noble career. I'm not trying to knock that at all or what they, they did do, which again, I, I think they sold 130 million albums total worldwide, most successful boy band ever. I mean, that, that's a hell of a legacy. If you're going to coast on your legacy, that's a good one to coast on. But yeah, there's something about yeah, the fact it, that JT is still out there releasing stuff. It, it makes it feel like NSYNC's presence is is kind of the specter of NSYNC is still on the charts. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Backstreet Boys, like if you know, I think you got to give it to them in terms of like how they've been able to maintain their audience. Yeah, because they are still really, they still have like a lot of fans. I think I, I think the difference is that Justin Timberlake sort of got out of that niche of boy bands, where he became sort of like a pop star for everybody, not just for people that were into that kind of music. Um, you know, I actually covered a Backstreet Boys concert in 2001 when I was a young newspaper reporter and it was the first show that AJ McLean performed after he went to rehab. Whoa. Uh, in, in, That's in, history. In 2001. And like, yeah, man, historic gig. And, uh, I mean, the audience at that show was insane. You know, I mean, they were super into the, in, into them and that was still like, they were still like a pretty big band at that point. They were, you know, they, they were playing at a sold out arena, you know, and there were just tons of screaming women like throughout that that entire show. Uh but yeah, like as the odds go on, you just see that their albums become 
not irrelevant. I mean, they're still selling in good numbers, but yeah, it just starts to shrink uh, in terms of like, I guess, their greater fame. And they become, like you said, more of a nostalgia act. Something that like, if you were 13 years old in 2000, now you're in your mid-30s and you're going to get together with like your junior high friends and go <laughs> see the Backstreet Boys right. and, and, and kind of re- relive your youth. I mean, that's what their career is now. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I asked a lot of friends just out of pure curiosity because I really, truly believed sync far and away. I, I, I guess I live in an sync house, you know? I just, that I, I'm surrounded by people that that's their band. So I, it definitely contributed to my bias. But I, I asked around and it was a, a straight 50-50 split, Backstreet Boys, sync, and, and the Backstreet Boy fans were extremely passionate. And I got to say, there's a great book coming out by uh, Maria Sherman, an incredible writer for Jezebel called um, Larger Than Life, uh, Boy Band History. And I read it last night. Just I couldn't put it down. It was so good. And just it, it's just so funny to me how it just the boy band continuum. I mean, going back from you could even call the Beatles even. I mean, with all the early like 1964 bubblegum type stuff that they were selling and all the marketing and everything. It's just fascinating that that continuum continues through to like, you know, the wanted and, um, and one direction. And it, 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 I, I'm really curious about the whole phenomenon, but just what it does to people and why people get so passionate about it. I mean, I know like rock fans love their band and, you know, do or die Zeppelin versus, you know, the who or something like that, or Spiels versus Stones or Oasis versus Blur. But I, I, I don't think I've ever seen people be so passionate about a boy band ri- or a band rivalry than about NSYNC versus Backstreet Boys, at least for the ones we've done so far. It's crazy. It's funny because for the bands themselves, they 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 pretty much deny now that they ever had a rivalry. I mean, yeah. like, when they talk about it, <laughs> you know, now like they'll they'll talk about each other in complimentary turns. Maybe sometimes like make like you know kind hearted jabs at each other, but it seems like they want to put all that behind them and just pretty much put it on Lou Pearlman. Like right. it, it seems like he is now the villain of this story rather than. Rather than them, you know, sort of going head to head against each other. Yeah, although I think Joey challenged him like a basketball showdown and said that InSync could kink, kick Backstreet Boys' ass on the basketball court, which I would love to see personally. I think so. Because, yeah, yeah, again, I feel like, you know, like Kevin Richardson from Backstreet Boys, wasn't he like 52 years old or something when he joined <laughs> that band? I mean, that dude seemed like a middle aged man immediately in that group. Yeah, every. I, I mean, I. I Every boy band seems to have that one member that like looks like he's s- sort of like the chaperone, I guess. Chris Kirkpatrick, I think, and Sync played that role. But they gave him like the wacky sideshow Bob hair, though. So <laughs> he kind of could pass for a young person. Right. Whereas Richardson, I just picture him wearing like a smoking jacket and smoking a pipe and maybe a, like a, a back brace or something. Oh, he yeah. used to he, scare me. He just me. seemed like so much older. Yeah. No, he used to like freak me out. He just And those like piercing eyes too. It was, yeah, there was definitely some like, it, it seemed like he'd like seen some shit. And like maybe that was what contributed definitely to the whole moody image of the Backstreet Boys. But yeah, no, there was, the, he, he kind of stuck out for me. You're totally right. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. 
You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So let's talk about the pro cases for each side. Uh, we'll start with the Backstreet Boys. I, it, we've talked about this already in the episode, but um, they are the most successful boy band of all time in terms of records sold. Like you said, it's like 130 million records, and uh, which just dwarfs the number of records that NSYNC has sold. I think Backstreet also put, has put up more albums, too, so that's helped them get there. But... Um, you know, like we were saying, I, I, I think the case that the group themselves might make is that they are more of a band than NSYNC was. That there is a sense of the sum being, you know, greater than than the parts. Um, and if you want to look at that from a negative perspective, you could say that well, that's because there aren't any breakout stars on the level of a just of a Justin Timberlake in the Backstreet Boys, but. In terms of their long-term, uh, like longevity, um, you know, there's no question that that parity that exists in the Backstreet Boys has helped keep them together. Um, I also say too, and I think you agree with this. I think "I Want It That Way" is the great song of the boy band era. Oh, like yeah. it is the best song that any that either of these groups have put out. I I might argue that I like more InSync songs than Backstreet Boys songs, but I don't like any in sync song as much as I want it that way. That Yeah, that's exactly how I feel, despite the fact I still have no idea what it means. Yeah, you know, I was looking at the lyrics of this song, and okay, so in the chorus it goes, 
don't want to hear you say, ain't nothing but a heartache, ain't nothing but a mistake. And he says, I never want to hear you say, I want it that way. But like in the verses, he's the recurring motif is that he does he want d- it that way. It's like they're arguing over who gets to say that they want it that way, is how I've I've read it. Yeah, I. it's definitely, I mean, I, I think Max Martin even said like, oh yeah, I, I wrote that when my, my English wasn't that good. Uh, and that's, I, I think they recorded a version where the lyrics actually made sense in English and it, they played it back and they had like focus testing and stuff and it just didn't sound the same. It just didn't have the same, it just didn't roll off the tongue, I guess as well. And so they went with a version that, you know, kind of looks like a, a Google translate mistake. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but there's that part at the end, like where the chord changes and it, you know, the song lifts up. It's like the dramatic climax of the song and it's like. I, I don't care, like, how much of a badass you think you are. You listen to that part of the song. It is, like, you know, scientifically engineered to give you the chills. Like, that is such a, a rousing part of that song. And it, really what I think makes that song such a transcendent, like, pop standard. And, you know, the, be- uh, the best part, too, is then they save that moment in the video for when all the fans are like on the tarmac too. So it's not, it, that moment doesn't just belong to Backstreet Boys. That belongs to the fans too, which is like, yeah, all right. I always appreciated that. So, I mean, do, do you agree that, I mean, essentially like that is what their case rests on. If you're going to argue on, fa- uh, you know, on behalf of the Backstreet Boys, it's, it's, I want it that way. And it's their longevity as a band. Yeah, I would also say that clearing the way for NSYNC, um, I mean, I, I, again, like we were talking earlier, I don't know how NSYNC would have done if they had been the first one out. But I think that they definitely benefited from even just, just managerial mistakes and stuff like that, that that Backstreet Boys had gone on before through them. So I think that adding to the case is that NSYNC benefited too. And, and a lot of the bands that followed, I mean, they were the first out the gate for... Uh, boy bands of the late 90s, 98 Degrees, O-Town, LFO, and then even like British imports like Westlife and Five and Boyzone. I, I think that, um, you know, on the, the the sort of boy band pyramid, they're sort of the keystone. Yeah, so you would say that they're they're the nirvana of boy bands. Oh, that, ooh, ooh. I, yes, that's exactly what I would say. I like that a lot. So I guess, I guess, and I want it that way, then would be the Smells Like Teen Spirit of, of, of boy bands. Like, it just kicked down the door yeah. for so many other bands. It just changed the world. Um, going over to the NSYNC side, and you know, we, we've reiterated this already, I think that the case for them is that even though that they, you know, even though they're not technically as successful as the Backstreet Boys, they are perceived to be more successful and in a way, I think that speaks to the relevance that they have now. They just seem to be the band that is, I hate to use this word, but they seem cooler than the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Uh, and I think that has fed into their legacy. And and the other thing NSYNC has, again, is Justin Timberlake. And you can say that Backstreet is more of a band. There's maybe more of an equal spirit among the members. But because NSYNC had Justin Timberlake, I think it just gave them a relevance that goes beyond boy bands and goes beyond that sort of late 90s, early aughts epic that all these groups were on. It just extended the life of that group in a way, even though the group itself you know, is no longer together. Oh, yeah. And that's not even to diminish what he did during the band's time together, too. I mean, he was an incredible songwriter. And like uh, 
Gone was nominated for a Grammy, and then he wrote the uh, the song Girlfriend with uh, with Nelly, and I, I think the, that was when he first uh, teamed up with the Neptunes too, which obviously worked out really well for <laughs> all music fans. Uh, and then just like his relevance in pop culture at the time too. I mean, dating Britney Spears was like, God, that was like what our our James Taylor and Carly Simon or something, our our pop super couple. By the way, we have to do a a JT and Britney episode at some point. Oh my God, like, yes. <laughs> Because, man, when I revisited Cry Like a River uh, the other day, I was like, damn, this is a brutal song. Oh, savage, yeah. Like he, and uh, it seems a little unfair in a way. Yeah. But it's such a great song that you forgive it when you're listening to it. But, yeah, that that's definitely going to be something we, we need to talk about at some point. Uh, you know, you said James Taylor and uh, uh, Carly Simon. There's also some Lindsay and Stevie elements to them as well, <laughs> yes. even though they weren't in the same band. They weren't in the same band, but like in terms of you know just sniping at each other through their songs, uh, you know, there's a, there's a rich history there. But anyway, that's a tangent for another day. I also feel like not to sleep on Lance Bass. I just think his cultural influence is not only a gay icon, but he was going to be tried to be the youngest astronaut in the space. Which I don't know if you, you're going to go from being a boy, in a boy band. I don't know, maybe like be a manager of another boy band, or maybe go in the PR. Like when your boy band closes down going to acting maybe but he wanted to be an astronaut and i just want to say i think that's really cool i just want to like shout that out i think that's like an awesome that, that that's part of my pro instinct case is the fact that lance wanted to go to space he didn't quite make it but still is that the first time anyone has uttered the phrase don't sleep on lance bass <laughs> I, I, I don't think anyone has ever said that ever so congratulations on breaking uh the don't sleep on lance bass barrier um <laughs> In terms of these two groups together, I, you know, I mean, I think I think we've made it pretty clear that, you know, at the time, they were pitted against each other, in part by design by Lou Pearlman. But again, to give Lou Pearlman some credit, I do think that, you know, rather than canceling each other out, I think that these groups actually helped each other because they both existed at the same time. It, it, it made the Backstreet Boys not seem like as much of a novelty. Yeah. And it also, I think, gave sync something to strive for, you know, if they felt like they were less than at that time, you know, they could look at Backstreet as like a goal that they could try to, you know, attain their status. And I think one thing that we've found on this show is that when you have some conflict and you give people a choice, um, it doesn't like dampen people's enthusiasm. It actually like brings it up. It makes people more excited. So I think, um, I think the evidence shows that they actually helped each other in their careers, you know, as much as they might have thought at the time that they were maybe threatening each other's bottom line. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, you know, I, and it, I never really thought about the argument about how InSync kind of legitimized the Backstreet Boys as not a fluke, as not this sort of like, you know, the monkeys kind of standalone successful prefab thing. You're right. And by giving people the choice, I think it was in Maria Sherman's new book that's coming out in July. It, it um, it's like the Beatles and the Stones. You, you, you see the group that you personally identify with. By having that choice, you see the attributes that you yourself see. You know, I'm a, a, a Beatles guy. I'm an in-sync guy. So more playful, fun, doesn't take things seriously kind of thing. There's people that, that like the moody, dark, brooding side and the sort of more dangerous rock and roll. I'm going to put, you know, in sync is definitely the Beatles in this scenario and, and Backstreet Boys are definitely the Stones. 
I just having that dichotomy is you're right. It it says more about us than it does about either band too. See, I think you're wrong on that. I really? think sync is the Stones. Really? And I think Backstreet is the Beatles. Well, I th- yeah, because well, first of all, the Beatles were first, uh, just like the Backstreet okay. Boys. I think the Be- I think the Backstreet Boys had more of a button-up image in the same way that the Beatles did. I think NSYNC was the looser, again, more kind of kid-friendly band. If you want to say that they were rebellious, I think they were probably more rebellious than the Backstreet Boys. I mean, they were rebelling against their own manager on the cover of their record, No Strings Attached. You know, they were much more upfront about challenging the machine, you know, if you will, than the Backstreet Boys were. So NSYNC, definitely the Stones. Wow. Backstreet, definitely the Beatles. All right. I would say. That's that. It's a fascinating but, take I hadn't considered, but you know, I this has <laughs> got to be probably the happiest ending of any feud we've ever done, and possibly will ever do. I mean, you know, they they overcame their prejudices, teamed up, corrected grave injustices, got what they deserved. The bad guy went to jail, made some cool tunes. It's like I don't know, like an episode of Scooby Doo or something. Like it's such a great like after school special ending. You know, I think it's safe to say too that they both wanted it that way. <laughs> They do want to hear you say it. Not, not. I don't want to hear you say it. They do want to hear you say it. Because again, that is the proper way to write that song, right? Like the idea is that you want her to say, "I want it that way," because it's the way you want it. Right. You want right? her Am to I say. Am I interpreting that song correctly? You want her to want it too. I think might be the yeah, simpler way. He's saying like, "I'm your fire. I'm your desire. I want it that way, and I want you to want it that way." Yeah. I really, you know what That's I want. The right way. You know what way I want it. I want to hear you sing it. I know you said you could sing every word. I would love to hear you sing it. <laughs> Maybe in our next episode. <laughs> I got it. Before I'll we go, have the I got to do that. Which boy band type are, would you be, Stephen? I know. I know oh, what I would be. I, I don't. I know what I would be. But I want to hear you first. Well, like, what would you be? I would either be probably. I mean, realistically. I would like to be the sweet one. I would probably be the one who looks prematurely old because in high school, I used to get shown hall passes from the underclassmen uh, because I thought I was a teacher. So I, I probably would be the uh, the Chris Kirkpatrick or uh, or Kevin Richardson one who just looks like way too old to be there. But um, yeah, that, that's if I'm honest. Uh, I'm going to be Joey Fatone yeah. because, <laughs> I, because I'm also, I'm a, I'm a total Joey Fat one too. So, you know, <laughs> I'll be Stevie Fat One. Um, on that note, I think it's time for us to go. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Rivals, and I uh, hope you all enjoyed some synchronized dancing with your best friends sometime in the future. <laughs> Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.